Hello, Dr. Danny Gilbert. Hi. How are you doing? Hi. I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Um, so we should tell everyone uh, that we owe this call to um, my dear friend, your sister, and regular politicology voice, Liz Gilbert, uh, who recently reminded me about your work. Thanks to Liz. We're now about a week into the developing war with Israel that Hamas has started. And I wanted to talk with you because one of the horrifying facets of their brutality is that they have taken something on the order of 150 or more hostages into Gaza. Mm -hmm. So before we get into that, can you just give everyone a sense of the breadth of your work and your expertise in the hostage crisis space? Sure. So first, thank you so much for having me. And as regular listeners may note, uh, Liz and I have very similar voices. So um, even though I'll be talking about different kind of topics than she normally brings to the show, um, it, it might feel like a familiar voice. So I am a professor at Northwestern University. I am a political scientist, and all of my research explores hostage-taking uh, writ large. So I study why different types of perpetrators take hostage and how they kidnap. I study U.S. public opinion about hostage recovery and media coverage of hostage crises. Okay, this is terrific. And we'll put uh, we'll put some notes about your bona fides in the show notes if people want to um, look you up. Um, but why don't we start with an overview of hostage-taking tactics in general and how they developed before we get into any of the current specifics? Sure. So hostage-taking is a tactic as old as time. Uh, it, the first mentions of hostage-taking are from the Code of Hammurabi. It's in the Bible. It's in the Quran. It's the kind of thing uh, that has always been a facet of war and diplomacy. Um, but over the last hundred years or so, it has been a, a significant problem in international security and foreign policy. Starting in the 1960s and running throughout the 1970s, armed groups, particularly terrorist organizations and rebel organizations, used different forms of mass hostage taking to draw the attention of the world to their cause and to coerce massive concessions. So uh, those kinds of attacks in the 60s and 70s were embassy hostage takings, um, like the 1979 uh, hostage taking of the U.S. Embassy in Iran, and a, a horrific set of uh, airplane hijackings. So much so that for, um, for a series of years in the 1970s, um, there's an estimated one airplane hijacking every five and a half days. So this was a major, major feature of the international security landscape um, during that time. But one of the things that's quite clear in a hijacking or an embassy siege is for the hostage taker, they might be able to get, get a lot of attention, but they put mm -hmm. themselves at a lot of risk. They have to negotiate their way out or die trying, essentially. And so in the 1980s, hostage taking shifted from these hostage-in-place attacks to surreptitious kidnappings where armed groups would take individuals and bring them to a new hidden location where they might not necessarily have the same access to media coverage of their hostage, but they could hide the hostage and they could stay for a very long time um, in relative safety. And so that's what kidnapping has looked like since um, basically since the 80s. So, okay, in a piece you just published today uh, in Good Authority, which I which I just finished reading a few minutes ago, and it's excellent, uh, we'll link mm -hmm. to it in the show notes, you talk about why this particular hostage crisis with Hamas is different. Um, and before we get into why it's different, we should talk about their history of hostage-taking violence and how they've used it in the past so we have some context for, for what we're looking at. Sure. So uh, beyond Hamas, and I'll start with, with some other Palestinian militant organizations, yeah. just to put the Hamas kidnappings in context, um, some of those most prominent hostage-taking attacks from the 1970s 
um, were perpetrated by different Palestinian militant organizations. So the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, the PFLP, was uh, really one of the world leaders. They were kind of the pioneers of airplane hijacking, and they used it for a very long time uh, where they targeted uh, Israelis, Jews, Americans to coerce different governments for these massive prisoner exchanges. Um, And so that went on throughout the 1970s. Other Palestinian militant organizations, including a group called Black September, also perpetrated these mass hostage takings, including a a horrific hostage taking at the 1972 Munich Olympics Mm -hmm. and um, an airplane hijacking that targeted Israelis in 1976 that resulted in uh, the famous rescue mission called the Raid on Entebbe um, when mm-hmm. Israeli special forces uh, flew to Uganda to rescue the about 100 Israeli and French hostages held there. And um, in more recent decades, Hamas, which is the particular terrorist and militant group responsible for this week's attacks, they have used kidnapping um, to hold Small individual groups of Israelis, maybe one or two at a time, often soldiers, but also civilians, in hopes of coercing prisoner swaps. So the most famous example of this that was um, for years uh, one of the the main political causes in Israel and something uh, in media around the world was the kidnapping of a 19-year-old Israeli soldier named Gilad Shalit who Mm -hmm. was held by Hamas for five years and ultimately was uh, exchanged for 1,027 prisoners released, um, Mm -hmm. most of whom were Palestinian prisoners, um, but also some prisoners from other countries. And so in these years, Hamas has seen that holding hostages can make the Israeli government uh, make enormous concessions to bring their citizens home. So this is different. This time is different yeah. um, for a number of reasons, I think, um, and we should get into those. Uh, but maybe the question is, what do they want? And maybe that will help frame the the, the way this particular uh, hostage taking is is different. For, for one thing, there's just so many people, and mm-hmm. uh, and it seems that they are not all being held in the same place, which really complicates things. So. Let's start with maybe the facts of what we know as of right now, which is about one o'clock Eastern on Friday, um, and then help us understand what what Hamas is doing this time uh, that makes the situation much different. Sure. So um, as you emphasized, Ron, the, the facts are changing all the time. There's so much that we don't know. And some of the information we might not know because no one knows it. The Israeli government doesn't know it. The American government doesn't know it. Um, It's also possible that there's a lot we don't know because it's in those governments' interests to keep it to themselves. And I can talk a little bit about um, those dynamics later. But um, as far as we know, uh, so far, um, as of this time, there have been um, 94 hostages who were identified by the Israeli government. Um, There have been estimates that there were as many as 150 hostages. And the United States government um, has acknowledged that uh, a small handful of those hostages are American citizens. We uh, don't know what other countries might have hostages. We don't know, um, know, how many of those 94 are Israelis uh, versus other citizens. One of the things that is incredibly complicated about this hostage taking, in addition to the huge numbers, is that we that they are almost certainly not being held together. So in mm-hmm. the mass hostage takings of the past, like in airplane hijacking or an embassy siege, or even some of the more famous mass kidnappings in history, the hostages were all held in one place. And because of the the chaos, during Saturday's brutality, um, I don't think anyone knows how far apart the hostages have been spread and who is holding them, how much 
centralization and leadership there is within Hamas that understands and can dictate uh, how to treat all these hostages and where they're being held. So that's one of the big complications mm-hmm. is just the, the sheer confusion and potential geographic spread among that different hostages. And another thing that makes this situation um, quite different from hostage takings in the past is the the sheer variety of the kinds of people who were mm-hmm. taken hostage. So our understanding is that some of them are soldiers, some of them are foreigners, most of them are, uh, or at least some of them are Israeli civilians. And among those civilians, the reports um, have emerged that uh, there are children and babies, that there are mothers, that there are grandmothers, you know, elderly people um, who are extremely vulnerable when it comes to thinking about their ability to survive in captivity. Yeah, you noted in your piece um, that often hostage takers are careful about who they take as hostages because they're thinking about people who will survive uh, Mm -hmm. a a, a, a brutal capture and Mm -hmm. for, for an indefinite period of time. Hamas doesn't seem to be concerned with that. Do you have any idea why? That's a great question. And and it relates to the broader question of what do they want? So I think that is, you know, that remains uh, unclear, but maybe not necessarily a mystery because Hamas has stated that they will execute a hostage for every Israeli missile strike on civilian that hits civilians in Gaza um, that is launched without warning. Um, And so in effect, rather than making it clear that they are using their past tactic of holding hostages for prisoner exchanges, it instead seems that they are holding these hostages as human shields. They are in effect uh, turning it back on the Israeli military and saying, if you engage in these retaliatory strikes, as you have pledged to do, that you will be responsible for the death of your own citizens being held in captivity. Mm-hmm. It almost seems as though this was designed to provoke the killing of civilians because of where they're likely keeping these hostages. One of the things we know about uh, Hamas is that they, you know, they launch their rockets from um, from behind apartment buildings where they know civilians are, or um, or they gather underneath hospitals and other civilian targets. So um, the 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 feature of using hostages and other civilians as human shields mm-hmm. uh, is one I'm wondering about in the context of other terrorist organizations. Um, so President Biden has now compared this massacre. Uh, as echoing the worst of ISIS. So I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk a little bit about how the, this hostage situation compares to what everyone should remember as the, as the sheer savagery of, of ISIS hostage executions. We should also note Hamas is threatened to live stream these executions mm-hmm. as well, which mm-hmm. is a, 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 another different component. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... I think it's a, a truism that people like to share when you see this kind of brutal violence that um, that the perpetrators don't value human life, that, you know, they could only do this if they have no value for human life. And in some ways, they are committing this violence precisely because they know that their target values human life. It's because mm. they know that the Israeli public and that the Israeli government can't tolerate what has happened to their family and community members and that they will demand a response um, and to make them afraid that anything that they do to try to recover the people who've been taken in a very clear violation of international law, hostage taking is unambiguously a war crime. Um, that, that they are trying to put the onus on democracies that care about their citizens. 
Um, I think that the comparison to ISIS in many ways is an apt one for a few different reasons. Um, the first is that the Islamic State, um, which, by the way, it was the Islamic State kidnappings that first really got me interested in, in studying mm. this topic. And so I've been thinking about it since 2014. Um, but that the Islamic State as an armed organization really exploded onto the world scene with their mass kidnappings of the Yazidi people from Iraq, um, that that was a, a massive set of abductions with many, many people taken together. And that within several months, it became clear that they had also kidnapped about a, a dozen or two dozen Westerners from a, a wide range of countries. Um, and these were journalists and aid workers who had traveled to Iraq and Syria to cover the ongoing conflict, to care for vulnerable populations. Um, and in particular, they kidnapped uh, several uh, American hostages. And the first of the hostages that they killed um, was named James Foley. He was, um, he was a freelance journalist who had been covering the conflict and dedicated to the region for quite some time. And uh, the, the Islamic State had demanded over $100 million as a ransom payment for his release. And when that ransom wasn't paid, they beheaded him and they televised it. They put it on the Internet for everyone to see. And over the coming weeks and months, um, did the same with Stephen Sotloff, with Peter Kassig, um, with British hostages. And um, in that time, some of the other countries that had their citizens kidnapped by ISIS ended up paying these massive ransom payments uh, to mm. get their citizens home. And so um, it's, a, it's an apt comparison, both for the mass hostage taking element and for the willingness to put online for the public these sheer documents of brutality. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we can expect based on uh, previous treatment by Hamas? What the conditions are like for the hostages now? Or is this time just so different that we really don't know uh, what what things are like for them? You know, I spoke with um, Avi Mayer recently, he's the editor at the Jerusalem Post. And um, uh, one thing he said just uh, a couple of days ago is that this is not the Hamas that we knew before, that this mm. is, uh, that, some, that something has changed. Um, and so it, it, so it almost makes it difficult to compare what they have done in the past to what's happening now as, as instructive. But if you, if you had to guess, what are things like for the people who've been captured? Mm. So, you know, the, the first caveat that I will give is that um, captivity is always atrocious. It's always um, unjustified. It is always a horrible physical and emotional and psychological experience for those held captive and, and for their family members. Um, though within that atrocity, um, it varies. Some hostage takers keep their hostages in, um, in worse conditions than, than others. Um, and especially when we're talking about hostage taking in an urban environment, um, we expect people to be in interior cramped conditions um, in a way that you would not expect of hostages. Uh, for example, with some of the armed groups I've studied in Colombia who are held in the jungle. Um, and so th there is certainly variation there. In the past, um, some of the reporting after Gilad Shalit was released was that he had been held in relatively humane conditions that Hamas wanted to portray that it had been humane. Um, but for a lot of reasons, I don't think that we can expect that kind of humanity uh, right now. And part of that is that Hamas, um, because of these actions of last weekend, that Gaza has been plunged into darkness, that the mm -hmm. um, Israeli siege on Gaza with no electricity and no fuel um, certainly affects the ability to have electricity, to have food and water. And so conditions for the hostages will be 
even worse than, than they might have been in other circumstances. And armed groups can use their hierarchy, their sense of internal command and control to ensure that individual combatants are treating hostages with a, with a bare modicum of, of respect. And in a situation like the one that we're seeing, where it's unclear the degree of command and control, it's unclear um, how much centralization there was with this attack, I think there's much greater risk that individual uh, guards, individual kidnappers involved in this captivity could be treating their hostages in a quite horrific way. Yeah, I think to underscore that point, one need only acknowledge the um, the the savagery with which they desecrated the bodies of the people who are already dead. And mm-hmm. we have confirmation now from the Israeli government that the stories of babies being decapitated is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I know that they've recently released images um, of some really nauseating. Uh, acts. So um, I think all that tracks. Yeah. Um, Ron, do you mind if I say something yeah. about, about that for, yeah, for please. which is, um, I feel absolutely sick at the idea of, of these images. And, and I think um, we should all feel sick and be outraged at the, the notion that, that anyone could commit this kind of, extra lethal, savage violence. At the same time, I would love to urge your listeners um, to know that they don't have to look at these images Mm -hmm. and that um, I would even strongly urge them to not watch videos if it comes to uh, the horrible eventuality of Hamas um, publicizing executions or anything like that. And I want to say that you can uh, you can bear witness to violence without watching the violence. And um, for, there are at, at least two good reasons that I would encourage your listeners not to engage in watching such videos. And one is that it is precisely what the perpetrators want you to do. They want to spread these images to scare you and to horrify you and to recruit their own supporters. Um, and so by not watching them, we are avoiding doing what precisely what they want. Mm. And the other is that it is traumatizing to uh, to look at these images, um, and you can be an ally and you can support people going through this without making yourself um, take on board images that you will never be able to unsee. I'm glad you mentioned this because you noted it uh, in your piece and you linked to a, a Bellingcat resource, which we'll also mm-hmm. link to about. Okay. Oh, uh, maintaining maintaining mental hygiene uh, as an open source researcher. So, um, yeah, thank thank you for mentioning that um, because I think I think it's really useful now. I, I'm I'm really worried about the the stuff we're about to see that we haven't seen mm-hmm. yet. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Uh, okay, let's talk about negotiations. Sure. <laughs> and and whether whether we should expect to see negotiations, what type of negotiations uh, there might be, and I think the big question is with who. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I am happy to talk about this um, negotiations as troubling as problematic as they might seem. They represent usually a good outcome because. Negotiations mean that the captives are coming home. And if the priority is first and foremost to recover hostages, then um, some governments have shown themselves willing to do whatever it takes, including making a quite painful concessions. So I imagine that there are uh, probably two different types of negotiations that 
um, certainly would be on government officials' minds, if not already underway. Uh, one of which would be um, purely humanitarian demands and humanitarian relief of, you know, it is, this is a conflict situation and sometimes armed groups hold soldiers as prisoners of war, um, but it is, I mean, it's certainly never acceptable to take any hostages, but it's something about taking babies and grandmothers, women and children mm -hmm. feels exceptionally violating. And so there are um, almost certainly actors ranging from governments to humanitarian organizations that are pushing for the humanitarian release of the most vulnerable hostages, um, that, that leverage need not be bought um, on the heads of babies. And so um, those negotiations are, are likely ongoing. And there has been a series of reports that countries, including Qatar and Egypt, would be um, involved in trying to convince Hamas to, to make such a release. Or potentially, I've also seen reported an exchange uh, for women and children, Palestinian women and children who are in Israeli prisons. The mm -hmm. second would be um, a broader set of a prisoner exchange, like we have seen Hamas and so many of the other Palestinian militant organizations use in the past. Um, that the hostages are being used in uh, human for human leverage, and that the idea would be to release Palestinians from prison. Um, and one can imagine that everyone is thinking about you know whether that's the goal or or whether to pursue that. Um, but of course, that would depend on Hamas's intention with the hostages. And given their threat of execution, they have at least so far indicated that their that their purpose is something different. And then the the question that you mentioned about who would they even be negotiating with? So that again comes down to this question of authority, of centralization, of even knowledge among Hamas militants of who's in charge and where are the hostages and how much control do they have. Um, and so I am always uh, hoping that negotiations are going on, but I think there are some extraordinary circumstances in this hostage taking that make that even less likely than usual. Is, is there, do we have any reporting at all uh, about whether Hamas has made any demands? Do we have they have they has anyone any representative from the group mm. uh, asked for anything? So far, the only um, reported clear set of demands that I have seen is the demand for Israel not to launch strikes. And so, um, in some ways, this is their uh, they are using human hostages um, as human shields and, and as a deterrent, basically, to say that um, that the thing they want is to, uh, to not face the retaliation that they are certain to be facing. And um, beyond that, I have not seen any other explicit demands. And um, we might see those come, or it might turn out that the human shield purpose was the, the only intention all along. Um. How how does this uh, begin to change as as the war develops, and how do you expect Israel to go about recovering hostages? Maybe you can put that into uh, context with the way they've behaved in the past um, in hostage recovery efforts. Sure. So it's incredibly complicated to recover hostages um, in an ongoing war situation and particularly in an urban warfare situation um, that that the Israeli military would be facing in trying to recover any hostages from Gaza. Um, in the past, the Israeli government has at times refused to make concessions. They have at times made uh, those, those concessions, including significant prisoner swaps like for Gilad Shalit. And they have also launched rescue missions. They have multiple special forces units within their military that have taken on some attempts to, to bring hostages back. One of the 
instances that I write about in my article is the 1976 raid on Entebbe when uh, the the Sayeret Matkal, the special forces unit in Israel, um, when faced with demands for a significant prisoner swap um, by the, the, the militant organization that had hijacked the plane, that rather than even consider these negotiations, they planned um, a raid where they uh, had a daring rescue, went in and managed to rescue nearly all of the hostages, um, 102 of the 105 who had been held um, at um, at enormous success to themselves as well. There was one commander who died in that rescue attempt, and it was actually um, the, one of the commanders of the unit named Yonatan Netanyahu. And mm-hmm. uh, perhaps the name Netanyahu is very familiar. Um, Yoni was Bibi Netanyahu, uh, the current prime minister of Israel, and um, he was his brother. Um, and so this is an incredibly personal issue for Bibi. It's an incredibly personal issue for, for everyone in Israel um, that this is the kind of thing that they are thinking about. But even in, um, in any hostage recovery attempt, um, it is extraordinarily difficult to plan and carry out a successful rescue mission. So even when it is when it seems like the only option on the table and it feels like the only tolerable way to bring people home, governments often can't proceed with missions if they aren't confident that their intelligence is accurate, that they are able to do so in a way that will not sacrifice all of their own special forces going in. And they also need to make sure that they can actually recover the hostages alive. So there are a huge number of concerns um, that make this extraordinarily difficult. This is, you know, I've I've studied hostage taking for a decade now. It's something that I pay a lot of attention to. And um, this hostage crisis seems to have just about every hallmark of uh, things that are going to make it very difficult to resolve. Okay. Um, can we turn to the American interest for just a moment? Um, of course. Because we, we, we now have confirmation that um, some some number, we don't know how many, of the hostages that Hamas has taken are American citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be helpful to understand what America's posture has been in the past toward hostage negotiations and hostage diplomacy, which is an incredibly fraught uh, area of policy, um, and how, given our mutual defense compact with Israel, you expect mm-hmm. the fact that there are American hostages um, there to shape the negotiations and, and or the recovery efforts. Sure. So uh, the United States government has confirmed that there is at least one American citizen who's among the hostages. The latest reports are um, that it is a few. Uh, what NSC spokesperson John Kirby has talked about as being um, a, less than a handful um, are the words that he used. So um, we do know that there are some American hostages and that the U.S. hostage recovery enterprise, the different offices and agencies that work on bringing home captive, captive Americans, um, that that enterprise has been activated and that they are working to, first of all, just find out the information and figure out who the hostages are and any idea about where they are and um, to start supporting their families and thinking about the release. So uh, one thing that we know for sure is that the Deputy Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs has traveled to Israel along with Secretary of State Blinken to be a part of those conversations that there are representatives from the FBI and from the Pentagon who are uh, both in the United States and in Israel who are working on these cases, and that the U.S. government has pledged its support in navigating this crisis and in bringing home not just the American hostages, but the Israeli hostages as well. Um, The U.S. government has worked 
certainly in the last uh, 20 years, um, which are some of the cases that I have studied uh, with partner militaries in hostage recovery efforts. So uh, over the last 20 years, there have been about three dozen publicly known hostage rescue attempts um, for Americans held hostage abroad. And about half of those uh, were led exclusively by U.S. forces. And the other half of those were led by ally and partner militaries with the support mm. of the U.S. military. And it's hard to know what that support means. It's you know, unclear if it mm. is just intelligence, um, if it's help with training, um, or actual um, participation in the the kinetic operation of, of bringing the hostage home. Um, but that has happened in countries all over the world. So I would expect those very same uh, relationships and forces to be, to be at play here. I think one other thing that probably comes to people's minds when they think about U.S. hostage recovery policy is what, um, what many people think of as the quote-unquote no-confession policy. Right. Um, we think, don't negotiate with terrorists. Right. Exactly. We don't negotiate with terrorists. And a lot of presidents in the 1970s and 80s um, and even till today that the presidents um, like to make that point. And, you know, if we think back again to those ISIS kidnappings and murders that among the reasons that the hostages were killed and did not come home is because the U.S. would not make those ransom payments. Um, so the, the no concessions policy is um, in many ways, a misnomer. Um, it uh, explicitly means only one thing, which is that the United States government will not pay monetary concessions to an armed group that has been designated by the U.S. State Department as a foreign terrorist organization. Mm. Um, and so it's actually a, a, a fairly narrow category, even if it does cover so many of those cases that are well known to us, like the ISIS kidnapping. Um, and so um, the no concessions policy has come very much into the domestic political debate in the United States over the last year and a half as people pay attention to a different kind of hostage taking, which is a state hostage taking, or what I refer mm -hmm. to as hostage diplomacy, um, with the enormous uh, negotiations and swaps that we have seen to recover, for example, Brittany Griner from Russia and the five American prisoners from Iran who came home just a few weeks ago um, in exchange for Iranian prisoners in the U.S., as well as um, this $6 billion of money held in a South Korean bank that was unfrozen. Um, and, yeah. you know, as an update to that story, even in the last couple of days, um, that the United States and Qatar have decided to refreeze those funds and that none of them have yet gone to Iran, um, plausibly uh, for Iran's backing of Hamas. And so yeah. hostage negotiations and concessions become um, incredibly complicated, not only in deciding what's appropriate in the moment, but their effects downstream on other things in foreign policy. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that $6 billion because I just recently, uh, a couple of days ago, talked to another friend of mine, Hagar Shamali, who, uh, whose specialty uh, when she worked for the government was counter-illicit finance, counter-terrorism finance. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of conversation about this. Um, the, the $6 billion that you mentioned in Iranian assets uh, that that the Biden administration unfroze um, at the uh, this was uh, some number of days ago, um, whether or not it could have been used to fund Hamas's attack. And of course, um, the we we have been told that no, of course it was only designated for humanitarian aid. That it couldn't have mm -hmm. been used for anything else. Um, and if it had been, we would know about it. And that not a penny mm -hmm. was spent in that direction. Mm -hmm. The question mm -hmm. then was from my finance friends who sort of scoffed at that saying, well, you don't understand how finance works and money is fungible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and of course, if they know they have access to these funds, then, you know, um, this would have changed the calculation. And so there's this, there's this question, as you mentioned, they've now refrozen the funds, which mm -hmm. underscores the question in the first place, 
what impact it could have had uh, on the decision to take hostages. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how you see um, you know, the unfreezing and then the freezing almost as an acknowledgement that this is a significant message, if nothing else, um, mm-hmm. to, to Iran and to um, who we know when we haven't really talked about very much uh, directly supports Hamas. It's unclear as of yet how deeply involved they were in the attacks, but we can we can assume that they uh, we, we know that they gave the green light at least. Sure. So I uh, will certainly agree with you in the premise that money is fungible. Um, I think the the idea that um, that everyone budgets as clearly as we might be able to in our head and say that one pot of money can you know designated for one thing doesn't affect a pot of money designated for another. Um, that we understand that that's not always true in practice. Um, contrary to that, however, is the assumption that money that is bookmarked exclusively for the use in, um, in humanitarian aid is supplanting money that the Iranian government would have been using for humanitarian aid anyway. And I think there's lots of reason to imagine that the Iranian government was not using a lot of money for the humanitarian support of its population. Um, and yeah. so, you know, while while acknowledging the fungibility of funds, um, you know, I, I think it's a distinction worth making. Um, this might be controversial, um, and I'm still puzzling my way through it. But one thing that I will say, um, as someone who thinks a lot about negotiations and someone who thinks a lot about coercion and concessions and how these deals are made. Um, it's been, you know, kind of a primary tenet of this conversation over the last year and a half that critics will say, we shouldn't be making these deals because they incentivize future deals, that our adversaries are learning that hostage taking works and that every concession we make um, teaches them that they will only win if they do this in the future. I understand the logic of this argument. I have articulated it um, many times myself. If we are stipulating that our adversaries learn and that anything that we do right now will change what they think about the future, we also have to think about the fact that clawing back confessions, that undoing a deal would also advertise to our would-be adversaries that confessions can't be trusted, that deals um, are not permanent. And so the willingness to make a trade in the future would also be at risk if our adversaries don't believe that they actually get to keep what they're given. And so I think all of that matters for reputation. I think it matters as we think through the enormous challenge facing the U.S. government and uh, American allies around the world about how to stop the practice of hostage taking in the first place, knowing that concessions typically work to bring hostages home, how can we make this process costly so that perpetrators never even do it? Hmm. That's a really good point. Um, Okay. Um, Danny, let's, um, let's talk about the people who are not hostages, but mm-hmm. who have loved ones, family members who have been taken by Hamas. And mm-hmm. um, it's it, it's impossible to imagine what they must be feeling and experiencing mm-hmm. right now. Um, mm-hmm. What do you say to them? What can they do? What should they do? What would past examples of successful hostage recovery efforts suggest mm-hmm. they do. And um, I know we're dealing with a situation that, as you said, uh, involves some of the worst elements, uh, if not all of the worst elements of um, hostage taking. Um, is, there, is there anything constructive uh, that, that you can say to them right now? So the first thing that I will just say, not as a scholar of hostage taking, but as a human, is that every inch of my heart goes out to them, that this is an unbearable atrocity that 
affects not just the specific victim of the violence, the hostage, but their families and communities. And so, so many more people become victimized by this kind of targeting than we can imagine. And hostage taking uh, works on the notion that it makes the target feel that they must respond. It puts the onus on the family member or the government to act. And that imposition of responsibility and frustrated agency makes this so difficult to deal with. And, um, you know, you're trying to go through life and simply deal with the fact that your loved one is missing and hurting and you have this sense of responsibility as well. So it's an unimaginable pain that uh, former hostages that I've spoken to and former family members of host- family members of former hostages that I've spoken to, um, you know, talk about the just the deep pain and trauma that they experience for the rest of their lives. So um, I want to acknowledge that and um, and also that that very pain is key to how this terrible mm. form of violence works. Um, in the United States, um, I know much more about what hostage families can do um, versus um, what those hostage families in other parts of the world might be thinking about. But, you know, I can certainly share the U.S. example, which is that um, for anyone uh, who is dealing with one of these crises and has not yet been in touch with the State Department's Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, the SPIHA, as um, he is abbreviated in the U.S. government, mm-hmm. that that is um, an excellent place to start to get in touch with their office. And they will connect you with all of the relevant um, diplomatic offices, FBI agents, and everyone um, who can help on the U.S. government side to assist with the case. There's also an incredible organization that I would uh, strongly recommend that um, that hostage families reach out to and that um, others um, who are interested could support called Hostage U.S. And Hostage U.S. is an organization that deals not with the hostage recovery and not with the policy and advocacy, but their entire uh, portfolio is about helping family members navigate the impossibility of dealing with a hostage crisis. Mm. And so that is connecting them with psychosocial support and helping them navigate difficult legal challenges and the American government bureaucracy and things as terribly frustrating and and Kafkaesque as the fact that um, people who are held in captivity can't can't pay their utility bills or their annual uh, tax bill on time and uh, Mm. finding ways to make sure that the U.S. government doesn't go after hostages for for their taxes. Mm, Um, And so so Hostage U.S. is is just a tremendous resource of amazing people who know so much about this topic, and I I couldn't recommend them more highly. Okay. They might also have good recommendations for... Oh, sorry, Ron. No, no, no. That's great. Yeah, go ahead. They might have uh, recommendations for similar organizations operating in other countries. So um, if you're listening to this, that would be my first call. Okay. And I assume you'd have the same suggestions for, you know, the the general public or concerned listeners, who many of whom uh, on the politicology side are here in the U.S. Is there mm-hmm. any resources you would point them to that might be constructive? Is there anything they can do um, besides showing solidarity with the with the victims? Um, mm-hmm. what what would you for people who want to do something who feel like mm-hmm. um, uh, you know it's their duty, what 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 would you tell them? Of course. So uh, this this is very challenging, and um I certainly sympathize with the the desire to do something. It's Part part of why I sat down uh, in the last two days to write the article that's linked with this episode. Um, you know, the first thing that I would say is something that I stressed earlier of what not to do. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, I would urge you not to watch 
videos of atrocities, um, or if you feel that you must to, to please read that Bellingcat guide that, that Ron mentioned will be linked to the episode. Um, the second is that there is a wonderful constellation of organizations in the United States that work all the time to deal with hostage cases, and whether that's Americans who are kidnapped by terrorist groups or Americans who have been what we call wrongfully detained uh, by uh, autocratic governments like Iran and like Russia. Um, and those organizations are fantastic. They do an um, enormous amount of work with very little resources and uh, small staff. And so um, it would be great to check them out, to understand their work, and to support them if you can. Um, those organizations include Hostage US that I mentioned before. There is the Bring Our Families Home campaign, which was organized by families of wrongful detainees, American hostages held by uh, autocratic governments, and the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, which was founded um, in the wake of the ISIS kidnappings that deals both with U.S. hostage policy and also press freedom around the world. So in addition to all of the uh, charities that are raising money um, for for victims in Israel, for um, the, for victims of atrocities, the um, these particular hostage organizations would be a great place for listeners to start. Okay, thanks for that. We'll link to those in the show notes. Um, b- before we hang up, Danny, is there anything I haven't asked you about this particular moment uh, in time that you that you want to talk about? Um, I know this is a really hard time for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. and I just want to, before we close, I want to make sure that I'm not missing something here that, that you feel is really important. I really appreciate that, Ron. I think we've covered the, the landscape, um, just to, um, to urge people to, to take care of themselves to take care of their loved ones and of their communities, check in with your friends, check in with yourself. And uh, one of the hard things about hostage crises and among the reasons that they are hard is that they are long. And so um, I know that we all want answers and we want clarity and we want it to end as soon as possible. But um giving yourself the the grace to know that that when it's a hostage taking we might be in it for the long haul um can help deal with the the horrors and the challenges of this day to day. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you about it and um will be hoping with all of my heart that they come home um safely soon. Professor Danny Gilbert, so good of you to share some of your time, which I know is at a premium right now. Um, We'd love to have you back anytime. Amazing. Thank Thank you so much for having me.